0: Welcome to Bank Talk with the Institute of International Bankers, where we talk with and about the foreign banking community in the United States. Thank you so much for joining us, and please be sure to subscribe so you never miss a beat with the IIB. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in. I am Stephanie Webster, General Counsel of the IIB, and I'm pleased to be hosting Bank Talk today. We are honored to have Dave Sewell and Satish Kinney from Debo Voice joining us uh, to talk about BSA, AML, and OFAC, um, and uh, what we might expect in that space in the future. So let me introduce our guests. Satish is the chair of Deba Boys' banking group and a member of its financial institutions group. Dave is counsel in the firm's New York office and a member of the firm's financial institutions and banking group. Um, he's also secretary of the New York City Bar Association Committee on Banking Law, with, of which I am a member. Both Satish and Dave are well-known in the industry, particularly in the BSA, AML, and OFAC space, and so uh, we're very pleased to have them here. So thank you, Dave and Satish, for joining.
1: Thanks so much for having us, Stephanie. We really appreciate it and really look forward to the conversation. Great. Yeah,
2: thank you very much, Stephanie.
0: Great. So so let's just dive right in. Um, So throughout 2019 and early 2020, we saw... I think what continues to be a a robust pace of BSA, AML and OFAC enforcement. Um, Can you talk a little bit about that? Um, What exactly you're seeing and and why?
1: Sure, Stephanie, this is Satish and I'll I'll kick that off. I think uh, you're absolutely right. I think our observation as well is 2019 was pretty robust in the enforcement space. for example, in terms of OFAC fines, I think the final total for 2019 was um, about $1.8 billion, And that involved a number of high-dollar, high-profile actions, uh, including against the foreign banking community. Um, correspondent banking relationships in that context continued to be an enforcement priority. Um, and, uh, you know, some of that was just uh, the tail end of a long line of, rela- of enforcement actions uh, that many people think uh, may have finally come to a conclusion, which is the, these large penalties for um, s- sanctions, violations that involve um, allegations of, um, you know, stripping of wires and, and similar kind of conduct.
0: So, conduct that uh, happened a long time ago, but is now just coming to to, to finality.
1: Exactly, I think that's exactly right. Um, but I still think there are other areas where we still are seeing activity. Um, we see, um, you know, cooperation among regulators, both U.S. and international. Um, cooperation uh, in cross-border investigations, and we've seen that in, the, in some of the Nordic banks. Um, we see cooperation in the United States at an increasing level between the federal banking regulators and the Department of Justice, FinCEN, OFAC. And so you see situations where there are a lot of multi-jurisdictional and multi-agency enforcement actions so I think, I think that's a, an emerging trend and a reason why I think we're gonna continue to see kind of robust activities um, uh, across the board. And then I know Dave is gonna talk about this, but certainly in New York, the New York Department of Financial Services um, has continued to signal that it is uh, taking BSA, AML and sanctions uh, very seriously, obviously for New York chartered institutions there's a requirement to provide an annual certification the part 504 certification um and uh, that gives some insights i think into what dfs is continuing to kind of focus on
0: and and are you seeing that that certification is sort of changing the nature and the basis for dfs enforcement actions or do you think it will maybe it's too early
1: i i I'd love for Dave to also comment on this, but I I think, you know, we have seen one sharpening of focus of attention, um, uh, certainly among regulated institutions, because they now do have to do this certification. Um, I think we've seen some institutions get questions about, you know, the certifications from the DFS and uh, have to be prepared to answer questions. So I do think it will be a trend that we continue to see evolve. Uh, Dave, I don't know if you have uh, further to add to that.
2: Yeah, no, absolutely. So, I mean, I think it, especially your membership, Stephanie, will appreciate that the you know the DFS has been a, a, a robust enforcer of BSA AML and and particularly sanctions uh, compliance matters. Really, since its uh, since its founding in twenty eleven, it's been kind of the um, the most, I would say publicly assertive of, of the state regulators, traditionally been an area, of course, of only uh, federal enforcement. In any case, you know, to your very good point, uh, and as Satish was mentioning, I think it was two years ago, in uh, actually three years ago now, um, part 504, which is a transaction monitoring and uh, watch list filtering regulation, which has um, an annual compliance requirement, very powerful enforcement tool, so the DFS hadn't used this authority, uh, for several years, and it was a, a kind of an ongoing source of, of speculation among the, uh, industry when it would happen. And we got the answer uh, a month ago on April 20th, when, uh, as part of a multi-agency resolution, the DFS imposed, um, a $35 million fine and as part of a consent order with the industrial bank of Korea, the underlying, um, uh the underlying compliance deficiencies were with respect to the iran sanctions program but one of the findings in the order and i think of note to many and potentially a cautionary tale is that um ibk's part 504 program and particularly the annual certifications were determined to be deficient and that was part of the uh the fine that was imposed
0: interesting And so we you think we can expect more of that.
2: Well, I I mean, it's it's, of course, hard to know. I do think that, you know, we have a relatively new superintendent uh, uh, of the DFS in Linda Lacewell. Um, By all accounts, she's a she's a very, you know, she is a very accomplished and by all accounts, a very careful. um superintendent so i don't i wouldn't necessarily expect uh a rash of these types of of actions i do think though this part 504 authority is quite powerful and the the dfs again has really kind of cut its teeth in a lot of ways in in these areas and i would think it's at least um, uh, plausible that we will see more activity and more findings relating to part 504 now that the first one is passed
1: right
0: and i know you know part 504 in some ways is pretty prescriptive and there are pluses and minuses to that and i guess you know are we are we but but for many of our institutions they you know they want to know what is it that the regulators are looking for right what are their expectations and have that you know pretty clear and straightforward so i guess are we expecting to see additional guidance, not just not necessarily from the DFS, but from from regulators in the in the short or or medium term, do you think?
2: Uh, Sure, maybe I'll start on that. And then Satish, I welcome you to jump in as well. You you know, I think um, it's a good question, Stephanie. And I think the evolving kind of expectations around BSA AML and sanctions compliance are always of concern. You know, 2019 at least saw some reasonably big developments in the space, um, and particularly you know, with respect to OFAC, um, uh, where in just about a year ago, OFAC issued its really first ever comprehensive compliance guidance illustrating and explaining what the components of an effective sanctions compliance program look like from the agency's views now most of most of what's in that document not is not new to financial institutions and to your members Uh, a lot of that has been kind of imposed uh, as a supervisory, as a matter of supervisory expectations, I guess I would say, for a long time, and certainly the foreign bank community has become very familiar to uh, familiar with all the requirements, not only through the supervisory process, um, but through, uh, for better or worse, the enforcement process, and and that's where the DFS piece kind of kicks in as well. Um, that said, I think the the OFAC compliance guidance from May 2019 is quite helpful in outlining the kind of the general roadmap and um, expectations for the agency, and grounding it in a written document as opposed to um, pronouncements uh, over the course of various enforcement actions and other sort of informal statements um, that didn't necessarily have broad applicability, uh, which is kind of how the uh, how the agency had indicated its expectations um earlier so i think it's a compilation of very useful information that, that institutions can use going forward now and just maybe for just to say one more thing about dfs now i don't think there is any or i don't there is no similar um kind of comprehensive guidance from the dfs regarding its expectations um that said i think you know the dfs in general and particularly in recent years has followed the um the federal kind of uh, prudential regulators and also OFAC in terms of its supervisory priorities, and so I think you you can kind of glean uh, a fair bit of information from from OFAC's guidance, um, and and assume that that the DFS is at least directionally uh, in line with it. I, I think I agree with everything that
1: Dave said. I think maybe two points to make um, uh, in terms of additional guidance. One is uh, the FFIEC earlier. Uh, this year, uh, started to issue long-awaited revisions to its BSA AML examination manual, and uh, it's issued revisions to one part of the manual and said additional revisions would come out on a rolling basis. Um, the focus of those revisions were really to emphasize that um, it's ex- the FFIC's expectations for risk-focused BSA examinations and. Um, Uh, signaling the intention of the uh, supervisors to um, look at things from a risk-based perspective um, and that institutions should not be second-guessed if they've done their risk-based analysis um, and then align their compliance programs to match that. So, I think that Mm -hmm. was helpful guidance. The other thing that I would note, which is Maybe goes the other way, and that continues to complicate compliance in this area. Is um, just the proliferation of, in, particularly in the sanction space, um, U.S. sanctions. Um, it, it had been a much simpler regime when you talked about compliance, um, you know, five years ago. But now, uh, sanctions are favored um, foreign policy tool that the Obama administration used and the Trump administration has used to a great degree. Um, And the types of sanctions that are imposed are increasingly complex, are increasingly detailed and focused. And that means compliance is much more challenging in lots of different circumstances. There are, of course, capital markets focused sanctions. There are sanctions that are uh, focused on certain types of you know, extensions of credit and debt and other types of arrangements, all of that just really makes compliance much more difficult and creates opportunities for foot faults or other issues that then can, of course, become the subject of an enforcement action. So I think we've had some good news and some helpful news from a compliance perspective with the FFIEC manual. But I think the long-term trend continues to be that there's gonna be challenges in this space given just the complexity of what's going on, particularly in the OFAC context.
0: Right, and I'm sure we could have a whole nother uh, podcast on the intersection of sanctions and foreign policy, but we might have to save that for another day. Um, So let's move forward uh, on the timeline and talk about the present day. So obviously, over the past few months, um, everyone's plate has been filled with all things COVID-19. I know, certainly at the IIB, we've been very focused on um, a number of issues related to that. Um, But I've also heard about in the news, increased activity in fraud and scams and sort of other criminal acts, as I think uh, people and institutions are more vulnerable. So what what sorts of challenges are you seeing in this space, I guess, both from the financial institutions perspective, as well as the regulators?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. And I'll start, Stephanie, and invite Dave to jump in as well. We are seeing um, lots of different challenges for institutions. Um, first, of course, just the whole um, you know, shelter in place and um, uh, work from home mandates um, that caused a lot of institutions to uh, call upon business continuity, contingency plans, um, you know, have had to stretch resources in ways that they didn't have to before. Um, And I think that's caused disruptions and challenges for conducting um, you know, transaction monitoring, SAR filings, um, sanction screening, making sure that they're doing those things on the timely basis that they're supposed to be doing um, and uh, you know there there has been some guidance from regulators regarding um, that that you know they are expecting uh, people to continue to meet their obligations in this space at the same time, I think there is a lot of attention on. Uh, fraud money laundering um other types of issues that emerge from the different um uh, programs that the government has been launching uh, and part of that emanates from i think there's a real desire to serve uh small businesses to serve customers to get money out where it's needed um and th- there's a worry though that in doing that um you know, institutions might miss, if they're not very careful, um, fraud or other illicit activities. And in particular, I think a real concern that a few years from now, when the hopefully all of this has come and gone and, and we're kind of back to the new normal, people, you know, there will be investigations from regulators, from the DOJ, from Congress, from others saying, uh, you know, how did you let this fraudster get this money? How did you not catch this money laundering scheme? How did you um how did your BSA AML program um uh, you know function uh, during this period? So I think institutions are are one wanting to try and do what they can to try and assist uh, their clients and on the other hand though uh, are really trying to make sure that their BSA AML programs Uh, continue to be robust and continue to operate in a way that will um, capture those types of situations that uh, involve illicit activities.
0: Right. So the the financial institutions are really the vehicles to getting this liquidity to the real economy. Um, And there's this need to balance, you know, the compliance concerns with, you know, getting relief as quickly as possible to folks. Um, I'm curious, and and Dave, please add anything else that you wanted to add on the, um, on what challenges folks are facing, but I'm curious, you know, what are regulators doing to help institutions balance those competing forces?
2: Yeah, no, thanks for that, Stephanie. It's a great, it's a great question. And, you know, I, I think... Um, it's been w- one of my reactions to the past, say, two months or so has been a, a, a some degree of astonishment um, at the kind of the velocity with which expectations seem to be changing. And so to give you an example, you know, when to Satisha's very good point and your very good point, um, when the Paycheck Protection Program uh, was launched and um, Congress, you know, through that, um, and of course with the SBA as the main uh, um, um, administrative agency in charge, kind of put banks really on the front lines of the virus um, response and really, really encourage, whether it's through capital treatment, through uh, kind of regulatory reporting relief, um, the the Fed in fact has sort of um, um, said that it will not conduct examinations for the most part, relying instead on continuous monitoring, all these steps uh, kind of taken to help uh, banks kind of have comfort that they can lend faster and to, you know, in greater volumes than maybe they would have otherwise in a, in a kind of more, you know, ordinary uh, circumstance. And I think you know all of that has been helpful. And and just to I'll talk in a second about the BSAML um, aspects of that, which I know is our main topic, but just you know, generally I think there has been this spirit of forbearance, or at least there was. Um, you know, I think that we're starting to see some signs of that changing um a little bit. You know, it it kind of started with um stories about public companies borrowing through the PPP. Right. And uh, you know criticisms are related related to that. Uh, we've seen now, to Satish's point, the DOJ, states' attorneys generals, um, uh, you know, other agencies starting to ask questions about lending decisions and so forth. And you can almost see in 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 far more rapid terms the pendulum swinging back now. Having said all that, I think on the BSA AML front, one things that one thing that the agencies and really almost every agency has done is issued some sort of guidance acknowledging the challenges that Satish, you know, ticked off earlier, including remote working arrangements and so forth, strain on systems and and those types of things. And, you know, so you had uh, FinCEN and OFAC separately issuing guidance saying, you know, in effect, we understand the challenges and if this relates in, you know, delayed filings or other uh, issues. Um, and of course I'm paraphrasing you know we understand. Um, I think there was a, a lot of comfort taken from that that faults at least maybe in the in the short term won't be a uh, cause for um, you know criticism or or, or anything like that. Um, I think the, 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 the difficulty is the longer term is is harder to evaluate and the most recent statements again about um, you know scrutiny as to the lending through the Paycheck Protection Program and else, elsewhere uh, is a little more concerning. And the echoes of kind of what happened after 2008, 2009, where there was a huge uptick in uh, especially BSA, AML-related enforcement after the crisis receded is, I think, very much in everybody's mind and and, and of concern.
0: Right. And and I guess given given the experience of um, F- FBOs in this space um, how, how comfortable do you think FBOs should be in embracing this flexibility you know are they really going to be okay <laughs> or you know are the regulators going to look back and start to see you know fault instead of you know acting on this flexibility that's for either Satish or David.
1: Yeah, it's a great question. What we've said to some of our clients, it it really, I think the, I think where clients choose to depart from existing policies and procedures, where they need to make uh, uh, revisions because of the need to get liquidity out, or because of the work from home nature of of efforts. You know, make sure things are documented, make sure the rationale is put forward, uh, make sure it's the governance around it is strong, because our worry for all the reasons Dave went through um, is uh, our our concern is that institutions um, in the future may face inquiries and FBOs, uh, if passed as prologue, may particularly face inquiries about actions that they take now, um, and, you know, determinations to vary from their existing policies and procedures to accommodate the extraordinary circumstances that they're in right now. So I think there has to be one eye uh, paid, you know, attention to what is going to come down in the future. And as Dave said, I think there are already signals that uh, institutions are going to get questions about their financial crimes compliance and uh, what they did during this period.
2: I think one point, I agree with all of that. One point I might just add, and and we're, you know, we're firmly in the realm of speculation here, but I do think there is, to my mind anyway, I was, you know, I was at the Federal Reserve during the last crisis and, you know, I think there was a sense, not necessarily within the Fed, but in the public more generally that, you know, that crisis was kind of something that, Um, the financial institution, if it didn't, if financial industry, if it didn't cause it, at least maybe didn't help it. And and again, I'm not endorsing this view. I'm just saying, I think that was the public perception. We're in a very different kind of meta climate right now, where I think, you know, I think that the the banking industry and financial institutions in general are not quite in the crosshairs publicly in the way that they were in 2008, 2009 and, and afterward. And so, you know, at least maybe this is, too optimistic, but I th- I'm hoping that maybe some of that spirit where the banks seem to be p- kind of part of the solution rather than part of the problem may inform the public debate, you know, and and in fact, the supervisory and enforcement um, environment in the, you know, the years to come after the pandemic. Receives. Right.
0: Although it seems that uh, nonetheless institutions should protect themselves just in case that isn't the situation in the future.
2: Without, without question. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yes. Without question.
0: Okay. Um, well, thank you both so much for your insights, uh, especially in this uh, era of uncertainty. Um, I know your clients appreciate your thoughtfulness and our listeners will, will most certainly find this useful. Um, before we wrap it up, is there anything else that you would like to add um, to the conversation?
1: No, I think, uh, Stephanie, as usual, you've covered the field very, very well, so I can't think of anything. It's been uh, a pleasure to do this, and uh, uh, obviously, the IB is always at the forefront of of thinking about these issues, um, and uh, I'm
2: sure it will be going forward as well.
0: Great. Dave?
2: No, that I, I echo everything Satish says, uh, and and thank you for the opportunity to speak to you and to your membership. Um, uh, we very much appreciate well, thanks
0: it. Thanks again, both Dave and Satish. Um, we really appreciate you taking the time to uh, join us on Bank Talk.
2: Thank you. Thank you.
0: Thank you again for joining us for Bank Talk with the Institute of International Bankers. We hope you enjoyed, and we hope to see you again soon for the next episode.